swings and drives one. Deep right field. Broad looks up. It's out of here. Curry for three. Got it. Struck him out. Now back up to the makes a diving catch in the end zone. Touchdown Giants. You're listening to Just Steven Sports with Steven Cusimano and Justin Lopiccolo. Just Steven Sports is back. Steven Cusimano here alongside Justin Lopiccolo coming at you from Arizona where, Justin, you just graduated from high school. Your first episode as a high school graduate. How does it feel? Yeah, it feels so good. I'm so ready to be done with all that and move on to college and have a good time there and talk more sports with you. And speaking of moving on from things, it seems the Mets and the Dodgers are having trouble moving on from the past. And by the past, I mean the National League Divisional Series where the Mets beat the Dodgers in five games. But if you remember in that series, the big headline was Chase Utley when he slid into second base or what many people were calling a dirty slide, not even a slide into second base, breaking Ruben Tejada's fibula. The rest is history. Chase Utley now has a rule named after him. And now seven Mets-Dodgers games later, Noah Syndergaard throws behind Chase Utley in this game the ball did not hit him, sailed over to the backstop, but nonetheless, on that pitch, the first pitch of this second at-bat of the game, Noah Syndergaard was ejected. I know both you and I, Justin, have really strong feelings about what happened in this at-bat. What was immediately going through your mind when you saw what happened? Well, I actually wasn't watching the game live, and I was checking the box score for the game because it was it was 0-0, and I was wondering you know, how many strikeouts Syndergaard had and if, how many hits there were, so I look, and I see that Verrett had pitched one and a third innings, and I, and I instantly looked it up. I, I looked up Noah Syndergaard, and I'm like, what happened? And I saw he got thrown out. I said, oh, he must have, you know, he must have hit someone uh, near the head or something or there was a warning before the game. So I look at the video, then I call Steven and I was I was shocked. I've only seen it maybe one other time where you can throw a guy out without a warning. And it was not even justified because he didn't hit him. And so just because it was Chase Utley and it was near him. He threw him out. But to me, if you want to look at it from a fairness standpoint, they kind of should have hit him. And I, I believe in retaliation in baseball as long as it's not, you know, near the head. But he broke our shortstop's leg, and they chose not to, you know, retaliate. The Mets said, you know, we'll, we'll just leave it alone. And so from their standpoint, if you were, if you did want to hit him, I wouldn't blame him. It's been a little bit too long, and I think, you know, you won the National League. You were the National League champs. You, you shouldn't have to do that. But if you wanted to... You go do it, but you shouldn't be afraid of getting ejected if you throw near the guy. The way I see it is three reasons. Uh, number one, why would the Mets throw, why would they decide to throw at Chase Utley in the seventh game since that incident happened? They faced Utley several times since then, both in Dodger Stadium and at City Field. Why would they wait until the seventh game since the incident to throw at him? Number two, this was the second at bat at this game. If the hit was going to be intentional, I think Noah Syndergaard would have done it in the first at bat. Why would he wait until the second one? And number three, Noah Syndergaard threw at Alcides Escobar famously in the World Series last year, and he came clean about it. He admitted to throwing at Alcides Escobar in the World Series. My question is, if he would do that, uh, admit to doing that in the World Series, why would he not admit to throwing at Chase Utley in some random game in the middle of May? And not only that, but in the heat of the moment, there's no way to know that that was intentional. And at that point, I feel like the only logical decision to make is giving him a warning. Yeah, and like I told you, I think this was a case of an umpire trying to make a name for himself on national TV because this was a nationally televised game, and it was sold out, and Syndergaard was on the mound. I mean, it was it was going to be a great game. I, I think that game would have ended up really, really close. The Mets only pulled off one run, but who knows? When you when your pitcher on the mound striking out 10 guys, then it kind of you know fires up your offense too. So maybe they, they wouldn't score one run. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's the Dodgers' fault. I'm just saying... In this situation, that umpire was just trying to make a name for herself, and he threw out one of the best pitchers in the game, one of the most important games of the last few months. So it's a little bit upsetting to see it, Stephen, because we all love to see Syndergaard pitch. I mean, you could be a Dodgers fan, a Yankees fan, anyone. It's still He's still a great pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour, and you want to see him go out there for at least seven innings, not two and a third. And the way I see it also is that 
there's no way you can throw out a guy uh, for not even hitting him with no warning because it's not like a thing where there was no warning before the series, there was no warning before the game, there was no warning, period. And to me, when the ball didn't even hit him, uh, that's not justification for ejecting somebody, uh, especially in a huge game like this with a sold-out crowd, prime time. They really, uh, this umpire, Adam Hamari, really ruined the game for everybody. And this is a game that the Mets ended up losing 9-1, to so... You have to figure, if Noah Syndergaard stayed in, he would have pitched well into the 7th or 8th inning. And this was, this is a game that would have been very close throughout. Uh, the bats would have been more on their feet. And the bullpen wouldn't have give, given up all of those runs. So this this incident right here impacted the game in such a huge way. And really, this turned into a shining moment for Chase Utley. Because the next play on defense that he made was a tremendous uh, glove flip to first base. His next turn at bat was a solo home run. And the one after that was a grand slam. So... This game was supposed to be about the Mets. This big 1986 World Series reunion, all the ceremonies before the game, turned into Chase Utley's night. He had five RBIs, two hits, a great night out in the field. And I feel like that says a lot about Chase Utley's personality and the way he plays the game. The fact that he was able to put aside all this pressure, attention, and animosity from the Mets fans and go out and have the night he did. But I feel like the way that this night ended, I really don't think it's going to be the end of this Dodgers and Mets feud. But... Keeping this conversation about the Mets, Matt Harvey has been downright awful for them this year. He pitched again on Tuesday, giving up five runs over five innings, eight hits, three home runs, two walks, and one strikeout, which is the most telling for me, being as this is a guy who usually strikes out 10 or more, inflating his ERA to a 6.08. And Terry Collins, the manager for the Mets, said that the minor leagues are not an option despite how bad he's pitched, but what if his next start is a disaster too? Well, then you have to reassess, and I think the best thing for him was to get uh, you know, at least one start off. Not because he's doing bad, but because he needs to rest. Because if you look at it, his first three innings are the best. He has his velocity, and even though he's somewhere around a 2.83 ERA, his first three innings he has the most velocity and the most kick on his fastball, and it seems to diminish in the fourth inning, and that's when his ERA spikes. So if you can get his velocity back by maybe giving him a little bit more rest, and they're having him throw these sim games in between his starts, but I don't even know if that's good. I don't think he should be throwing so much between starts. He should be stretching and getting ready, but if he keeps throwing, he's not going to have his velocity like he hasn't. Without his velocity, he's just a 93-mile-an-hour fastball pitcher and with a decent slider when it's going and, and hasn't been. I think even a bigger problem than his velocity is his uh, you know pitching choice. What Whatever he throws seems to be wrong I mean he'll throw a 2-2 changeup or an 0-2 changeup and it'll you know drift a little bit high in the zone and someone will hit it out he has to know what pitches are working for him and what pitches are not and stop trying to prove you know stop trying to prove to everyone that oh this changeup still works because I believe it was against the Nationals where he threw a changeup to Ryan Zimmerman and he hit it out and then when Rendon came up, he kept trying to get that changeup across, and even on the first pitch, he tried it, and it, it was in the dirt because he could, he wanted to prove to people that he could yep. still use that changeup, and, and it just didn't work for him. And you mentioned the fastball velocity as one of the main issues for Matt Harvey. Well, when that fastball is 94 miles per hour or above, hitters are batting just 200 against him with a 291 slugging percentage, and when that fastball is 94 miles per hour or below, Batters are hitting 431 with a 597 slugging percentage, so obviously a huge difference. It's been like night and day, and you mentioned how he's pitching these sim games in between, and I really agree with you in the fact that that might not be the answer because when his power in specific uh, between the third and fourth inning, his kind of stamina and longevity in that time of the game has been the question. I feel like giving him a week off might be more beneficial, and if that doesn't work, then you start to look elsewhere for answers, but... I was looking at some numbers from Steven Strasburg, and it was really interesting because if you remember, a couple years ago, Steven Strasburg had his Tommy John surgery, and the Nationals shut him down uh, before they got into the playoffs and ultimately ended up losing that series against the Cardinals because of that decision. But the following year, Steven Strasburg had a solid year, um, pitched pretty well. But then the year after that, which was last year, 2015, 
Started out the year with a 650 ERA, a 169 whip, a 321 opposing batting average, and it's really strikingly similar for Matt Harvey because he had his Tommy John surgery, and then last year was his first year back, pitched to a sub-3 ERA, pitched into the 270s, and had a great season for the Mets, even pitched a nine shutout innings in the World Series, which was his last start of 2015. But you look at this year, starts with a 608 ERA compared to Strasburg's 650 last year, a 169 whip, which is exactly the same as Strasburg's was last year, and a 330 opposing batting average, which is nine points above where Strasburg's was last year. And this is really interesting to me because it's it comes at a time for both of these pitchers at the same time after they got their Tommy John surgery. So it leads me to believe that there could be some sort of a relationship here. Well, yeah, I definitely think so. But for you know, the good thing for Matt Harvey's benefit is that we both think he's going to have a better start on Monday against the White Sox, and we just have a feeling. I mean, and our I, predictions I, are right. I remember Matt Harvey's best start of his career coming against the White Sox yep. a couple years ago, given it wasn't during the slump. But he does have good history against this team, and I know you're expecting big things from tomorrow night, Justin. What are you expecting from Matt Harvey's next start? Well, I expect the Mets to come out hot on offense and then back him up a little bit. Uh, it's just kind of the Mets' offense is usually pretty decent, but it's, it seems to be hit or miss sometimes, and. Uh, that that comes when you kind of bank on the home run because everyone on that team can hit home runs. But I expect to see Harvey go at least six innings and strike out maybe six or seven, uh, maybe go up two runs. But that's a great step in the right direction. And to me, that's a quality start for him because he needs to get on the right track. Uh, look for, if you're watching this game, look for his velocity. Once you see it hit 94, 95 on the fastball, he's about to get hit and it's going to be bad. But for me and Steven, we think that he's going to come out strong on a team that he faced before and had a great start. So for tomorrow's start, like I said, look for velocity and look for the Mets to come out hot. And if that, if both those things can happen, Harvey's going to have a good day. So the Mets playing the Dodgers this weekend. And you may have noticed Yasiel Puig not playing quite as much as he's used to because he's being disciplined for an incident earlier this week where he did not run out a fly ball that he thought was a home run. He instead stood in the batter's box and what should have been a double or a triple turned into a single. And as a result, Dave Roberts has benched him several times this week, Justin. Obviously, that's not the type of effort that you want to see from any of your players. So the simple question here is, was Dave Roberts justified in this decision? I mean, I think so, because Yasiel Puig is kind of a repeat offender. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't seem to care what anyone has to say about it. I understand that if you hit a home run, it's already embarrassing if it doesn't go over the wall and it ends up being a single. So to admire it's not bad, and I'm all for bat flips. I'm all for, you know, whatever you want to do after you hit a home run. But I don't like the fact that it actually didn't even go over the wall. So unless you hit a no-doubter, you shouldn't do that. Uh, I think he was justified in it, but I don't know if it was 100% Puig's fault. I mean, I'm sure he actually thought it was a home run. I mean, I'm sure he didn't think it was a deep single. So from his standpoint, yes, you know, it kind of sucks. But from Dave Roberts' standpoint, yeah, like he didn't run out anything. So you you can bat for the ball you want, but make sure it goes over the wall. And I think he's justified in benching him because, you know, if anyone else does that, they should be benched too, not just Puig. And you mentioned how Yasiel Puig is a repeat offender when it comes to things like this. And it seems like always the Dodgers are trying to uh, convince him to stop doing things like this and trying to discipline him, do you think this guy will ever learn? I think he's always going to be Yasiel Puig, but I think if you take this guy and if you're at some point out of the race, and which I don't think they will be in the West, you send him down to the minors for a week, and and if you are very sure you don't want him on the team and it won't it won't negatively impact you to not have him for a week, you send him down to the minors, let him see what it's like down there, and he'll realize that he really doesn't want to be down there and how much less interesting, how many less fans there is, how many you know less people care what you do, and so. 
if at any point you don't need him for some reason or he's he's almost injured but he, he you know he can't really go out there but you don't want to put him on the DL send him down to the minors see how he likes that but he'll always be Yasiel Puig and once he gets on to a team that doesn't have as big a fan base and isn't as good he'll realize what he had going in LA and he ruined it because you know the only reason he's playing now is because he's their best option at right field it's kind of up to him whether he wants to change or not but I see the same Puig now and in five years. And it's not just Yasiel Puig. This seems to be a sort of a trend with a lot of Cuban-born players that come over to the major leagues. Why is this sort of laziness, carelessness about the game and arrogance? It seems like a lot of Cuban players are really arrogant in the fact that they think that they're already better than everybody else when they first come over to the major leagues. Why is this sort of attitude a trend with Cuban players, do you think? Well, because a lot of the times if Cuban players come over, they already think they're the best players because they were the best players in Cuba. Yasiel Puig was a phenom. Yasmani Tomas was a phenom over in Cuba. But they have to realize it's a different game. People come here from all over the world for a reason because you get paid the big bucks to come over here rather than, you know, in Japan or Cuba. Kenta Maeda is a good, you know, good example. Ichiro is a good example. There's so many players that come over and they, they act a little bit different. And not necessarily Ichiro and Maeda. They're very... They seem very humble as uh, baseball players and kind of kept to themselves. But in Cuba, I think the culture is a little bit more eccentric and like excited and happy, which is great. But in Japan, it's a little bit more like relaxed. And I don't want to generalize, but I mean, overall, that's how I would you know view it. And so when they come over here, they're excited because they're the best players at their position, they're the best players in the league in Cuba. Then they come over and they have a breakout year like Puig did. And then they think they're on top of the world here too. And you can't kind of kick him off the pedestal without diminishing his confidence or changing the way he plays. And speaking of arrogance, carelessness, laziness, Alex Rodriguez was rehabbing this week from a three-week hamstring injury in Double-A Trenton for the Trenton Thunder, the Yankees' Double-A affiliate, and he hit a no-doubt home run off of this Double-A pitcher, and of course, he took it to himself to show off with an emphatic bat flip. Really, A-Rod? I mean, I don't even know what to say about this because, you know... You and I are fans of the Mets, so we're a little bit we're a little bit biased when it comes to A Rod. But come on, I mean, if you're a Yankees fan, you got to be thinking the same thing. Why would he bat flip? It's Double A, like uh, it's it's not that hard. I mean, I'm not gonna discredit anyone who plays in Double A. I'm sure it's not the easiest thing in the world. But if you put any major league player down in Double A, they could hit they could hit ten home runs in fifteen games, and I wouldn't put it past them. So to bat flip on a home run off a Double A pitcher. It just shows that he's kind of tired of hitting home runs in the MLB, and I don't think he's going to do it for much longer. And to me, I think you and I agree, and most MLB fans agree, there's a time and place for bat flips. This was not one of those times or places. I think when you're talking about when bat flips should be appropriate, I think it's in big games during big moments, like Jose Batista's last year in the playoffs. That's the first one that comes to my mind. Not games like this in AAA, AA, or anywhere in the minor leagues. So it's a reoccurring topic lately in the major leagues. When is the appropriate time for a bat flip? Well, I've thought about this a lot because I do like the idea of a bat flip, and I have a little bit different of an opinion than a lot of other people. I think you should be able to bat flip. If you're winning, you can bat flip. I think if it's even if it's you know seven to one, if you hit a home run, you hit a home run because you know you're winning already. You're you're excited. You're happy. So you hit a home run off a guy. You make it worse. You can bat flip. I mean, you might get you might get hit for it. You might get you know retaliate against in the next game. But if it's a close game, and you hit a home run, you can bat flip. If you if it you tie the game with a home run, you can bat flip. If you take the lead with the home run, you can bat flip. As long as you're not losing or you're not up by like an insane amount, like maybe like eight or nine runs, then keep it to yourself. If you're facing a pitcher, you know, if you're facing a pitcher that he's like a young rookie pitcher and he just came in, it's kind of a courtesy you don't bat flip on him. But I think as long as you're winning or you tie the game or it's in a big moment, you can do it. But 
don't not in double A, not in double A off a double A pitcher in a game that means nothing. And falling back on that retaliation standpoint, Noah Syndergaard last night got thrown out for throwing behind Chase Utley, not even hitting him just because the umpire thought that it was an intentional throw at Chase Utley. So uh, I guess the question I'm asking here is when is it okay, if it is even ever okay, to retaliate on a baseball field? I think I'm all for retaliation in baseball. I think that, first of all, yeah, it doesn't, unless you're hitting somebody in the head, it doesn't hurt anybody that bad. And I know you could get a bruise or, you know, it, it could hit something. And, it would and I agree. I think right. if it hits their head, that's, that's too much. That's too much. But but if you, if like Jose Bautista, it was a great bat flip and I'm totally behind it, but I could 100% see why the Rangers would want to retaliate on that. It was a big moment. It upset them. You know, it it that home run followed, if, if you remember, like two errors and, and two bad throws that just loaded the bases or got two guys on or whatever. And so, yeah, I understand. And I think it's okay to retaliate. If someone does something, you know, that you deem disrespectful to your team, I think it's okay. If they hit your guy, I think you should hit them back as long as it's in the right circumstance. You know, you don't want to be up by three and then you, you know, walk a guy with two outs. The next guy gets on. The next guy hits a home run. You don't want to do that. You want to be up by a lot or down by a lot. And then do it. But I think it's totally fine as long as you're not going for the head. And I think, you know, these articles on the Internet are making it seem like it's such a big issue. Same thing with, with the replay, which I want to talk to you about in a minute. But they're making it seem like it's such a big issue that, oh, retaliation, and what are we going to do about it? It's been going on for years. What, why is it an issue now? Why is it an issue? Because all this stuff's happening, and now everyone's like, oh, you see, you see, when Syndergaard throws behind Chase Utley, and it's a big deal. Well, he didn't even hit him, and he got thrown out. So the umpires need to change their viewpoint on uh, retaliation and what's okay with them. But... That brings me to something that I, I just remembered that I wanted to talk to you about is a lot of people are talking about how replay has been taken too far. And I, I know we watch SNY all the time for the Mets and, and Gary and Keith seem to say a lot that, you know, they're ruining the game with this replay thing. But I don't really have a problem with it. I think if you're going to get the right call, I think that's how it should be. I, I understand sports are about excitement and you kind of take some of it out when you, you know, go to the replay booth in a big play. But you want to get the right call. Who would want to do something great? And then get you know get screwed out of it by the umpire and there was a no hitter who was it Gallardo that threw that no hitter the perfect yeah. game and and the out call at first was wrong and so I bet he would support replay so you have to kind of be in the situation to understand it and I know Keith has before so I'm not I'm not sure why people say that replay is hurting the game and what do you think do you think we should get rid of it or keep it the way it is well, I think there's two types of fans in the MLB there's us type of millennial fans that haven't been around the game as long as, per se, uh, our grandpas or our dads, guys who have been around the game for uh, 50 to hundreds of years. And those type of people are tend to be a lot more old-fashioned with their opinions and the fact that they like to see that human error aspect in baseball. But uh, people like us, millennial-type fans, younger fans, I'd say probably 25 or younger that haven't been around the game or have an appreciation of the game as much as guys who have been around it their entire life uh, back when it first started in the 50s and 60s and all those uh, older eras back then, I feel like uh, us younger fans just like to see the right team win. And we see instant replay in the NBA. We see it in the NFL and most other major sports. And I think that's why it's such a big problem right now and such a big topic right now is because younger fans just want to see the right team win. And uh, more old-fashioned fans who have been around the game their entire life and know uh, how the game is supposed to be looked at and appreciated as the old uh, great American pastime. I think that those type of fans, they appreciate the human error, but at the same time, they would like to see the right team win. With that being said, I think that the MLB is focusing too much on speeding up the game and at the same time, uh, trying to improve instant replay because it's two completely different things. If you want to improve the pace of the game, you cannot have instant replay and vice versa. So, they need to make up their mind as to whether or not they want to improve instant replay or improve the pace of the game because um, as you improve one, it negates the other. And 
I would say my biggest problem with instant replay is the fact that sometimes the replays just take way too long. There are certain times when I can tell after watching one, two, or three replays that the call was either blatantly correct or blatantly incorrect. And if I can see that from the naked eye of watching it on TV, um, I think that people whose job is devoted to doing that in New York City, uh, they should be able to do that in a timely fashion and in an accurate fashion. With that being said, I think that if you're going to have some plays reviewable, I think you need to have all plays reviewable because, you know, especially when the, the managers only have one challenge, it's not like every single play is going to be reviewed. It's just that the more plays that are reviewable, the better a chance that the uh, the umpires have at getting it right. I mean, if you're going to have uh, a call, a safe call at first base reviewable, I think that a, a balls and strikes call should also be reviewable. And if the managers have one challenge, then do they really want to waste it on a balls and strikes call or do they want to waste it on a, a call at home plate? Uh, so you could expand the plays that are reviewable or not. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are all going to be reviewed. So while it has its flaws, I do, in a way, support instant replay. It comes down to, like, how, and I understand it from an entertainment perspective, but how big of a baseball fan are you? Because if you care about watching an extra five minutes of a game just to make sure the right team won, and you don't want you don't want that, then you're not really a baseball exactly. fan. But I understand it from an entertainment perspective because they're not going just, the MLB's not going for just baseball fans. They're going for people who they, they want to watch the game and maybe get hooked or watch the game for the first time. But... To me, as a, like a real baseball fan, I don't care. I, I want to see the right team win. And if you tell me that you don't want replay, then you're t essentially saying you're okay if the team that you like does not win on a play that was clearly wrong, made by the umpire, you're okay with your team losing because you just don't want to wait that extra five minutes. And to me, that, that's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. I agree, because even if you're an old-fashioned fan who doesn't support instant replay and supports the play how it's called on the field, and you're a fan of a team that loses because of a play that was called incorrectly, then in that heat of the moment... You're not going to tell me that you do not want instant replay in the league because it's a lot different when it's your team on the losing end of a bad call because in that instance, when your team lost a game because the wrong call was made, I think everybody supports instant replay. So I think implementing it little by little is definitely a step in the right direction for the major leagues. But we're going to flex it over to the NBA now as the finals are approaching. Last night, Western Conference Finals Game 6, Golden State Warriors beat the Oklahoma City Thunder 108-101. to They win two games in a row now, force a Game 7. As the series heads back to Golden State tomorrow night, Oklahoma City led most all of this game until three or four minutes to go. Klay Thompson sets a playoff record with 11 three-pointers. He scores 41 points. Justin, what stuck out most to you? Well, what stuck out to me is uh, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook have a major problem in the fourth quarter, and it's it's getting out of hand because we talked about it uh, many shows ago. In the middle of the year, we talked about how the Thunder continue to give up leads, and actually the day that we did talk about it, they, they actually gave up a lead in the fourth quarter, and, and they lost. Of but, course. <laughs> but in this game, they got outscored 33-18 to 18 in the fourth quarter. That's unacceptable on any you know in any playoff game in the fourth quarter. You need to put up at least 20, 25 points in a quarter, too, especially to stick with the Warriors, who, who put up decent numbers, and they had 20 in the first, so a little bit slow, uh, 28 in the second, 27 in the third, and then a whopping 33 in the fourth quarter. But that wouldn't have even been the issue if OKC could have put up 25, and it, it's upsetting because their Russell Westbrook is a is a great talent. I think he's almost as good as Steph Curry. You can argue as much as you want, but he's more athletic than Steph Curry. And he, he when he's on, he can shoot as well. I'm not saying he's better than, but Russell Westbrook is you know to me the second best point guard in the league. Kevin Durant does not miss when he's on when he's on a roll. He doesn't miss and. He plays decent defense. He he's athletic. You know he's more athletic than he looks. And there's no excuse why one of those guys shouldn't shouldn't be leading the team in the fourth quarter. And I think the problem is 
Russell Westbrook has a bigger ego than a lot of other players. So when he goes on to the court, he wants to take over the game, but Kevin Durant won't say anything, but maybe he feels like he should be able to take the game, and I think he should because he's proven more, and even though Westbrook's a great player, I think Kevin Durant's a better shooter. But aside from that, someone needs to be clutch. Someone needs to step up and say, hey, we're going to take this game because blowing that lead in the fourth quarter, was it was upsetting because you know I want the Thunder to win this series. I think they, I think that they're the better team right now. And by giving up leads in the fourth quarter, you don't show that you're a better team. You show that you're the weaker team and you don't have leadership. I mean, right at the end of the game, they took Steph Curry was ISO. He he put everyone away and he said, I'm going to make this layup. And I think it was Serge Ibaka was defending him. So he had a mismatch. And the whole team was okay with him and ISO. And, and he made the layup and they gave him the lead. He gave him a five or six point lead at that point. So you need to pick a guy who leads this team because it's upsetting to see you blow that even though it was a slim lead, blow that slim lead by so much in the fourth quarter getting outscored. And I read an interesting hot take on Twitter last night and it said that when this offense runs through Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant wins. The Thunder don't necessarily win big games. But when this offense runs through Russell Westbrook, not only does Russell Westbrook win, but the team wins. And that's really interesting to think about because when you look at the first four games of this series, the guy who was really putting up the huge numbers and eye-popping results was Russell Westbrook, not Kevin Durant. Yeah, I agree. And Russell Westbrook's really athletic, and he he can actually run an offense. He has he had some like six assists in the first quarter in the other game or something like that. So he's a great player, and he can run an offense now. He proved it. But to take clutch shots, I think you will both agree that I don't think Westbrook should be taking any clutch shots because we saw a couple times in the regular season there was like some you know three seconds left, and he put like a one-handed three-pointer up, covered and defended. It just doesn't. It didn't make sense then. I think to run the offense till the end, yes. But who should take the last shot? I mean, I think you'd agree it should be Kevin Durant. Now, people were calling this Game 7 on Monday night one for the ages. People think it's going to be tremendous. And the Cleveland Cavaliers a couple days ago, people forget, advanced already to the NBA Finals. Can they carry that momentum, having a couple days off over the team that advances out of the West into beating them in Game 1? Or is whoever advances out of the West winning the Finals either way? Well, we'll talk about who we think advances uh, from the West. But if if OKC makes it against the Cavs, I'd pick OKC. Uh, because they, because Golden State likes to play small, and I think that other teams have realized that if you just play big on a team that plays small, you're going to win because you're going to dominate the glass. So, uh, like I said, if OKC were to make it, they could match up at pretty much any position. That's why I like the Thunders because they can match up with any team. They can play small, play big, whatever you need. They can do it, and I think they'll match the Cavs uh, throughout the whole series. And I think uh, if the Thunder make it, I'd say they take it in six, but that's not my you know official prediction, but I, I that's what I'd you know, estimate at the time. But if Golden State takes it, LeBron wants revenge, even more revenge for losing out in the last finals. So I think the Cavs will take it because they're fully healthy now. And that'll go to, I think, a game, maybe a game seven and the Cavs will win. But I think LeBron James is playing on, you know, playing on another level now. He's aging and I'm not the biggest fan of LeBron, but you have to admire what he's been doing in these playoffs and how he leads his team to all, he leads his team to wins no matter where he is. And then he proved that he could do it in Toronto or anywhere he has to go. But I think they'll have a shot with whoever goes. And I think that they would lose to the Thunder, but I think they'd have a shot with whatever team they face. And it's funny you mentioned that they, the Cavaliers do have a shot at beating the Warriors because when you think about what it really does take to beat the Warriors, um, I think the mistake that everybody's made this year is you're not going to beat them at their own game. Their own game, I mean, they play small like you were saying, and they obviously put up a lot of three-pointers, and they're the best team at that. Uh, when teams try to match up that way and try to put up a lot of three-pointers and in contrast, play small with the Warriors, and they don't win, and they never have been winning. And I think that's why the Thunder have had such an impressive series, is that they're winning at their own game, and you're not going to beat Golden State at their game. You're going to beat them by playing your game. They're going to be, You're going to beat them by going back to your bread and butter. If you're a pitcher, you're not going to strike out guys based on their weaknesses. You're going to strike out guys by going back to your bread and butter, and I think that's what Oklahoma City has done. And if I think if Golden State does get to the finals, I think that Cleveland 
needs to keep on doing what they've been doing. They need to do what, what works best for them, and I think that is their best shot at beating Golden State. But Game 7 is obviously going to be huge. It's tomorrow night, 9 o'clock Eastern. Quite simply, who wins and why? Well, I'll give you a little comparison for something that happened. And I just want to acknowledge, uh, I did win that bet last week. $5 yes, was on the did. table. <laughs> and we're going to put that $5 back on the table right now. We're going to predict the scores for Game 7, Oklahoma City at Golden State right now. All right, so before I before I give you my pick, I'd like to bring you back to a story from last year is when the, I believe it was the, the Rangers and, or no, it was the Royals and uh, the Blue Jays last year in the World Series. And uh, Fox accidentally put, uh, the World Series preview for the Royals and the Mets already up before this it, be, during the game before it was even over they 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 assumed that the Royals were going to make it and actually just a, that. just a few minutes ago the NBA accidentally on their Facebook page posted that the Warriors were going to make it uh, to the finals against the um, the Cleveland Cavaliers and so they they took that down really fast but it was funny to see it up there so on that note I'll take uh, Golden State in Game Seven one fifteen to one oh seven wow pretty high score there um I would say that. Golden State, it's really hard to envision them losing this game being as they have already won two in a row. The Thunder lost all momentum that they had coming out of Game 4. It's really it's going to be hard to see them winning this game, especially since it's at Golden State. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that my score last time we predicted was only two points off. It I was. said that <laughs> the score would be 105 to 96, and it ended up being 105 to, I think, 99 or something like that. So The free throws put you over. The free throws put you, it, it was a little bit higher than your score, but without those little free throws at the end, you were you were on point. Yeah, and I was really surprised to see that, but the, the, the Raptors did win that game. They didn't win the series. Um, I definitely think that Golden State does win this game, um, and I think it's going to be by a score of... 107 to 100. That's a good prediction. Like I said, I want, I picked the Thunder, you know, all the way back when we first started this show to beat Golden State, and I really I wanted to stick by it till the end, but I'm going to try to be realistic with you is that they should have took yesterday's game, and yesterday's game, if we would have had a I show— I think that was it for them. Right, and yesterday's game, if we would have had a show, I would have told you, okay, say so wins by 7 or even 8 because they play better at home, but they gave it up in the fourth quarter. They got outscored by too much to win a game, and I think it'll happen again, and— I don't think they'll even be winning in most of this game, though. I mean, I think they'll be close, and then right at the end, they'll, they'll let uh, Golden State pull away. So they have to just, for OKC, not that I'm picking them, but for them, they have to stick to their game plan, what they did, and Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant need to say, hey, this is the biggest game of our lives. We, we never made it this far together at, the, as, at this unit. I mean, Westbrook and Durant have, but this is a new team, a, a team that can compete in the finals, and will have a good chance of beating the Cavaliers. So the way they have to look at it is that this is the finals. This is our game seven. This is the most important game we've played in years. And against uh, you know a team that won 73 games, this is the most important game they've played ever. So it's, for them, it's important to stick to what they've done and, and go out there and, and give it their best shot because Golden State's going to be ready. <laughs> and then Steph Curry wants this, and Draymond Green wants this, and Klay Thompson wants it, and they want to go back-to-back. And honestly, I feel like it would only be fitting for Golden State to win this game because when you look at the seasons as a whole, the Warriors won 73 games. They're not going to go down without a fight. They won... If they win this game, they would have won three in a row en route to getting to the finals. And you you and I both mentioned the fact that Oklahoma City has given up so many fourth-quarter leads so far this year. And I feel like Oklahoma City giving up that fourth-quarter lead on Saturday night and that would being their final chance and the, the fact that that game would have sent them to the finals, I feel like that would be just the most fitting end to their season. It's kind of their fatal flaw right now this year. And, you know, speaking on the Thunder, their window is kind of closing because this is a team that has been really good for probably about four or five years, been really good since LeBron was winning championships with the Heat. They used to be in the Western Conference Finals every single year, but just could never seal the deal with all those strong uh, Spurs and Heat teams. And it, it raises questions about the the window for these teams. Russell Westbrook's going to be a free agent soon. Kevin Durant's going to be a free agent soon. 
if they don't win this game and if they don't win the finals this year, will they ever, this particular team, um, including Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, Serge Ibaka, and all of those guys in Oklahoma City, will they win a finals in the near future? No, not in the, definitely not in the near future because after this year, uh, if they don't win the championship, I think I think Durant leaves. I mean, maybe he'll give it one more ride for the fans and how he, you know, he sees how how uh, happy they are and he'll never forget how loud they are in that stadium. But to me, you've been there long enough. You're a top five player in the league, and now it's time to go because they haven't done you. That, your team hasn't done you justice. I know he loves Westbrook, so that might be another driving force for him to stay. But if I was him, I'd test the market. You're going to get big money. Westbrook's a free agent in 17, so maybe go to a team that says, hey, you know, you take me, and then next year will you take Russell with me? That's what I would do if he really likes him that much. But it's just, it's just you're wasting. If you if if Durant goes back to uh, Oklahoma City Thunder next year, he's wasting a year because they're not going to win the championship next year. This this year is their time, and then after that, Westbrook's going to want to leave. He doesn't want to stay there. I, I get the vibe that he doesn't want to stay there. So for the next five years, I don't think they're going to win a championship. So it's time to go now before it gets really really bad, and you're stuck into a contract, and then you have no one around you. But if they can keep the exact same team together, you can't count it out. I just I don't think that's going to happen. So Western Conference Finals, Game 7, tomorrow night, Oracle Arena, 9 o'clock Eastern. Tune into that, and also be sure to tune in to our next episode of Just Steven Sports. Should be up later this week. Just give us a follow on Twitter at Just Steve Sports, and you can find it right there. I'm Steven Cusimano alongside Justin Lopiccolo. Thanks for tuning in.